0: Hello and welcome to the first 2024 edition of our RAI Roundups. Christmas is a notoriously busy time and we've been prepping for Mini-Signal's 5th birthday on the 10th as well, so that busy business has continued into the new year. However, with festive possessions handed back and new toys engineering work complete, normal working can resume. These roundups are the episodes of Signals to Danger, where we look at current affairs in the world of railway safety, with a focus on the work of the Rail Inves- Accident Investigation Branch, a uh, an organisation you'd think I'd be able to pronounce correctly by now. My name is Dan Fox, and I am the producer of the Signals to Danger podcast and a railwayman in my day-to-day life, although now, after a bit of moving around at the end of the year, taking on a new challenge in a 3 months' secondment in a new role no longer a community manager, but now an interim driver manager. So perhaps some new insights to be gained. In case I completely forget to do this later in the episode, let me take this opportunity to thank you all for the support you've shown the podcast over the course of the last year, since the relaunch, and indeed for all the time you have supported still when content was a little bit less forthcoming. Without any further ado, let's dive into our roundup. This week we're going to be looking at two news stories then two safety digests and the report into the derailment at London Gateway two years ago, which has now finally been released. Before we take a little jaunt into the topic of HST cab design, introduction done, episode, let's get going. Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire this morning and caught fire. I could feel the heat coming through the windows, and all the windows I could see were just orange like like the sun. 36 die in a South London train crash. Some who survived that were killed when a third train hit the wreckage. This was, in the words of the coroner, a unique set of circumstances that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. Okay, so starting out today's current affairs roundup, the REIB has released two new stories, informing us that there will be two more investigations joining the rosters of those that were started in 2023. Hopefully, well, when I wrote this, hopefully the last two from 2023 and now it's 2024 because this episode didn't happen quite as quickly as I would have liked it to have. The first of these incidents took place on the 16th of November at 4:38 in the morning when a multi-purpose vehicle, also known as an MPV, collided with a stationary tamper on high-speed one just near Strood. This collision, that was at a speed of around about 12 miles an hour, that took place while the tamper was being prepared to be coupled to a separate MPV on the other side. This is a relatively low speed, but the issue became far more serious because an operator was actually positioned between the tamper and the second MPV as part of the preparation for coupling. The collision caused the two vehicles to move along the track and to strike this operator who sustained injuries requiring hospital treatment. In addition, three other operators were knocked over on both vehicles, but they luckily didn't get injured. The damage to the vehicles was minor, but it will likely be the injury sustained by the operator that has led to the requirement for an investigation. MPVs aren't light road rail vehicles that some of you might have been picturing. They are in essence a two car diesel multiple unit. They consist of a cab at each end and a load bed, which is fitted with ISO standard container latches. So that combinations of 10 and 20 foot modules can be secured to the bed, which actually enables these vehicles to undertake a number of different tasks. It might be overhead line replacement or other duties, things like that. In the north, or at least in my region, I see these most regularly kitted out with sandite equipment during leaf fall season. The platform itself is based on the German cargo sprinter format, a venture from the nineties which saw Windorf build a well a container carrying cargo train which could slot in between passenger services. Essentially, a freight diesel multiple unit kind of think, You know, Thunderbird two for high speed deliveries. Um, In fact, that base unit itself has also been used to make firefighting trains for the Swiss railways and their many tunnels, so it is a a handy piece of versatile kit. In any case, it means that this was, in all essence, a collision between two trains, a decent weight MPV and a heavy tamper, so it's important to understand how that took place. There's a lot of difference in the way that trains move in possessions, so no doubt the investigation is going to fill us in on that. The RIB tells us that their focuses, foci, focuses, yeah, we'll go with focuses, will be the actions of those involved and anything that may have influenced them, the management of railway staff involved in the accident, including their training and competence, the method of operation in use when the collision occurred, as well as the policies and procedures in place for managing such operations. And as we hear every single time, any underlying management factors will also come under the uh, the eye of the we'll keep an eye out for the release of that report to find out more the second of the incidents occurred a little later in november that was on the 22nd and on the isle of Wight. during the early hours a road rail vehicle an rrv collided with a hand trolley which had been placed on the railway between smallbrook junction and braiding on the island line at the time of the accident, the line was under possession as part of maintenance work and was closed to normal railway services. So yet again, an incident which took place during works. As a result of the collision, the hand trolley struck two track workers who were standing near to the railway. They both sustained, indus- in- they both sustained injuries, which required hospital treatment. No damage was caused to the RRV or to the trolley involved, although both of those things were well, a little bit less fragile than people. And again, I'd imagine the injuries were probably just a motivating factor to the involvement of the branch. If we haven't heard of RRVs, road rail vehicles before, they're a bit of a quirk of the railway. These are vehicles that can travel to the railway via road and then lower train wheels down and run along the line itself. As such, they're normally about the size of a large car or a van although at this point I can't be sure exactly what type of RRV was involved because the detail is a little bit thin on the ground, even from sources outside of what the RRV has put out. The investigation is going to be seeking similar info to the one at Strood, and I'm not going to read them out because it is pretty much exactly word for word, and if you hadn't clicked on yet, there are a generally st- set group of phrases that the RAIB uses when they outline what they're looking for as part of their investigations in both cases as well the branch is obviously going to be looking to understand the sequence of events that led up to the incident and the full details will be shared with us at a time when the branch is well ready to do so which can sometimes be quite quick sometimes can take some time as we'll find out when we talk about london gateway a little bit later on in any case that is the reib news updates out of the way let's move on now to have a look at some safety digests So on to safety digests, and there have been two of them since we spoke last about them on the roundup, but they're not new to us because we mentioned them in the ongoing investigations piece I did about two months ago, something like that. The first of these, published on the 5th of December, is the digest relating to the overspeeding instance at Wood Green and Melton Lane Crossing. We'll start as the digest does by just discussing Wood Green, but then we'll look at both together as the circumstances are quite similar, hence the uh, combined safety digest summary of the events at Wood Green. Then is that on the 11th of June 23, a 20 mile an hour speed restriction, an emergency speed restriction specifically, which we'll refer to as an ESR from now on, was imposed from 5:20 in the morning on the down fast at Wood Green, uh, that is near Alexandra Palace station in London. A parallel ESR was imposed on the down slow line. These ESRs had been put in place due to forecasted hot weather and the expectation that critical rail temperatures would be exceeded later in the day, and that increases the risk of track buckling. As we've mentioned in previous everything, um, rails in the UK are pre-stressed to a certain temperature range, and that's based on what's generally expected in this country, and sometimes that temp will be above or below that range, which means that the tracks can react adversely They can break in extreme cold, they can buckle as they expand in extreme heat. The digest goes on to tell us that by the end of the 11th of June, at least four passenger trains had exceeded that 20 mile an hour ESR, travelling at 40, 86, 89 and 94 miles an hour respectively. Quite considerable excesses in each case, even the 40 miles an hour Although compared to 94 it doesn't seem it, that is twice the posted restriction for that section of line. The restriction that was put in place at Melton Lane level crossing on the line between Hull and Leeds saw a similar situation the following day on the 12th of June. That was a 20 mile an hour speed limit, but over the course of the day, at least one passenger train passed over the section more than three times that speed at 65 miles an hour. These incidents are serious. Luckily, there were no adverse effects, but those limits are in place for a reason, and it's clear that those limits were broken, and in three cases, by around about four times the speed posted. So now we need to ask, well rather the REIB needed to ask, how did it happen? These overspeeding incidents occurred because the drivers of the trains involved didn't realise that the ESRs applied to their trains which sounds silly, Um, there must be processes in place to make sure drivers are aware. Um, Well, actually, in these situations, equipment had already been installed on the track, which related to earlier speed restrictions. And instead of, well, we'll get into it a little bit more, but these pieces of signage that were in place already had just been adopted and adapted to warn drivers about the new ESRs, which brought challenges. There are standards, which was a word we brought out a lot last time we were together talking about Ladbroke Grove, which govern the use of ESRs in hot weather. The standard splits the potential track temperatures into three brackets, CRTW, CRT30-60 and CRT20, CRT standing for Critical Rail Temperature. W, that sees a worker deployed to monitor the track. 30-60 sees a 30-mile-an-hour restriction on freight trains and 60 for passengers, and 20 is a full 20-mile-an-hour restriction for all traffic. As a little bit more background, the rulebook also defines what equipment might be needed for an emergency speed restriction, or speed restrictions in general. Longer-term temporary speed restrictions make it into operating notices which drivers all receive and sign for. They have to read them It gives some updates on what's changed on the line around them. But emergency speed restrictions, well they? Often put in place with much less notice and therefore need some extra trackside equipment to be placed when they're installed. Simplified version is that a speed restriction itself has a commencement board at the start, which shows the speed limit, and a termination board at the end saying you're leaving the restriction. Both emergency and temporary speed restrictions also have a warning board in advance of that commencement board, with sufficient distance left to break to the reduced speed And a temporary AWS magnet is fitted in advance of that um, warning board to provide a warning, audible and visual warning in the cab as well. Emergency speed restrictions additionally also have an EROS indicator, the uh, emergency reduction of speed indicator, which is supposed to be another 200 yards in front again with an extra AWS magnet, whereas a TSR doesn't have that. The um, EROS indicator is a black and yellow chevron sort of it sound a truncated cone shape. So if you were to look at a, a cone and then just lob the top of it off, that's kind of what you've got. Might make it easier to picture it if I tell you that it's also affectionately referred to as a Dalek. Might give you a, a bit of an image of the profile that we're looking at there. Armed with this information then, let's have a look first at what went wrong at Wood Green. Well, prior to the introduction of the ESR which saw the overspeeds, there was an unrelated ESR on an adjacent line But because trains that were travelling on the down fast could theoretically, very rarely, but theoretically be routed onto that line, it was needed to put warning boards on the down fast as well for the other ESR. This meant that every train driver travelling along the down fast line for, well, for a while, (laughs) um, had received an AWS audible warning and a visual indication from each of the two portable AWS magnets associated with the ESR. They'd driven past an EROS and warning board, but that warning board had an arrow indicating that it only applied to the diverging route. All of this, regardless of whether or not they were going to be rerouted onto the down slow two, which was the line that had the restriction in place. The other restriction was in place from the 25th of May. So that's been in place for a while by this point. And in the time between then and the new ESR, being put in place on the on the down fast uh three well over 3,000 trains had passed those boards received those warnings seen the the eros only 16 of them were routed over onto the down slow too um so you couldn't understand how people would be conditioned to that doesn't apply to me because if they weren't going onto over the restricted line it wouldn't have done The downslow 2 restriction boards were also placed closer than designed to the actual restriction because they would have overlapped with another um, ER, uh, ERR. A completely blanked ESR, I've only been talking about it for 10 minutes, Uh, It would have overlapped with another ESR that was further back north along the route. Um, As such, it didn't actually provide the required minimum braking distance under the standards, so a bit of a problematic one before you even start folding in the weather related ESRs um, on the fast line. So take us now to the night of the 10th leading into the 11th of June. Uh, route control staff were worried about the workload of signalers stopping and cautioning trains through the 20 mile an hour restrictions that they expected that they need due to critical rail temperatures the next day. So they instructed maintenance staff to install as many of the ESRs as possible that they thought they would need. Staff in Doncaster Designed the ASRs for the depot team to install down south. However, they didn't take account of the existing ASR equipment that had been taken uh, that had been put in place for the Downslaw 2 line on the 25th of May. Because of the presence of the existing equipment, the additional equipment required for the CRT20 ASRs on the Downfast and downslow couldn't actually be installed in accordance with the design. It would all have overlapped. It would all have got very muddied. So the Depot staff installing it therefore decided to adapt the equipment that had previously been installed. They did this by adding a third AWS magnet and a second warning board 85 meters beyond the existing diverging route warning board. And If it sounds like there’s issues with that, that’s because there really is. The configuration of the ASR warning equipment at Wood Green on the 11th of June meant that drivers were less likely to realize that a new ESR was in force. Equipment relating to the earlier one had been in place for 16 days. All of this equipment was left in exactly the same locations for the ESR of the 11th of June, just adding in a few extra pieces of kit. And the warnings that drivers had received during the previous 16 days hadn't applied to the majority of them. And you probably shouldn't do, but potentially it's realistic to expect that that would lead to drivers regularly coming up and down that section being habituated to receiving warnings for an ESR that didn't apply to their trains. The newly installed warning board for the ESR on the down fast line was actually only two seconds running time, at uh, 95 mile an hour from the additional magnet, so drivers had little to no time to react to the AWS warning and then try and find out what the reason for it was. And let's be fair, with this muddle and mix of Old and new, the sequence of warning boards did not sufficiently draw drivers' attention to the new SR. New ESR, try to get my words out separately, you can tell it's been a couple of weeks since I've done one of these. Really, uh, the professionalism has fallen off a cliff. I'm very sorry. In any case, I think we can understand the confusion at Wood Green, with all of that taken into account. Uh, quickly let's look at Melton Lane as well. So on the 23rd of May, an ESR had been installed on the down hull with a 30-75 designation, so freight trains had to reduce to 30, and TPE Northern, LNER, and Hull Train Services were free to run at 75 miles an hour through the section. This was in place till the temperature increase on the 12th of June, which saw the need to further restrict that speed to 20 miles an hour. The RAIB found no evidence that a new design was produced when it became necessary to impose a CRT-20 ESR due to hot weather on the 12th of June. Instead, the maintenance staff simply swapped the 30-75 board for 20 mile an hour boards. (laughs) Just changed the numbers. Same boards, same place, just changed the speed displayed on them. Uh, Network Rail said this because they had insufficient staff to move the equipment... But if the ESR, well, the CRT20 ESR had been implemented in accordance with the group standard, it's a GKRT0075, for those of you who are interested, for a reduction in speed from 75 to 20, they would actually have had to move the warning board and the associated equipment 70 metres further from the start of the ESR, because that minimum deceleration distance would have needed to have increased by that amount. But they didn't. The configuration of the ESR warning equipment on the down line line um, had the potential to mislead drivers. It was because it was installed in exactly the same location as the earlier ESR. Even though they changed the numbers, it was the same kit, same location. And um, repositioning the ESR equipment would have provided drivers with a cue that the speed limit had changed. So I think it's easy to see how things went wrong here. Although the speeds weren't as high, as the wood-green issues, ESRs are all set at the levels that there are for a reason, so it's important that they're all followed, well, properly. The digest was headed by a list of important safety messages for the industry, and these stated that the instance demonstrated the importance of designers of speed restrictions being aware of the location and the status of existing restrictions which may interact with new designs. Fairly self-explanatory. It also says that staff installing speed restrictions not using equipment that had previously been installed is a uh, it's important to put new kit in or move it uh, also the, it, the importance of having adequate numbers of staff to make sure that they are correctly designed reviewed and installed not just bodged or well quite frankly farmed out to somewhere 150 miles away for someone who may not be as familiar with the route uh, also, the importance of the rail industry, considering the conclusions and recommendations arising from, and here's a, a one I haven't read before, but maybe you'll be interested, from RSSB Research Project T1251, Review of Technological Interventions to Mitigate Train Overspeeding Risk. Maybe we'll look at T1251 at some point. It sounds like it could be interesting. But we'll take a little breather there. I'll have a little drink of, uh, of my juice and then we'll come back and talk about the second Safety Digest. The second of the two Safety Digests on the docket for this week comes out of another overspeeding issue, this one between Blackford and Gleneagles in Scotland, back north of the border. As the Digest tells us, on the morning of the 14th of July, 2023, Network Rail issued 14 blanket speed restrictions, BSRs, not to be confused with ESRs. There's a lot of SRs in this episode thus far. So BSRs are blanket speed restrictions, um, previously referred to in some cases as BESRs, blanket emergency speed restrictions, but that's too many E's sounds for me for this episode. We'll go with BSR in anticipation of heavy rainfall. So we do have BSRs that are put in place because we expect heavy rainfall and associated issues and risks. So, information about the BSRs was sent by Network Rail by email to those signal boxes and train operating companies which would be affected. And after receiving updated weather information, they sent information about four additional BSRs at 21.45 to the same recipients. Network Rail intended those additional BSRs to be imposed at 4 o'clock in the morning on the 15th of July, the following day. Which all feels a bit wordy, but we're going to focus in on one of those additional BSR notifications, which applied to a a 2.5 mile section of line between Blackford Signal Box and Gleneagle Station. That was an imposed temporary maximum permitted speed of 40 miles an hour, from 4 in the morning till 7pm on the 15th, and the normal maximum speed between these locations was 90. So quite a significant reduction. Which brings us to what was seen on the day. So at around 5.30 in the morning, the signaller at Blackford Signal Box observed a northbound freight service operated by DRS, that's Direct Rail Services, pass through the speed restriction, apparently without reducing their speed the next two trains to pass the box were southbound Scotrail passenger services and both seemed to observe the BSR however the next northbound Scotrail passenger service again appeared to pass without reducing speed noting that southbound trains had been observing the BSR the uh, Blackford signaller contacted the Octorada signaller to the north of the limit to ask the BSR uh, to ask the signaller if southbound trains had been stopped and cautioned the Octorada signal said they had not, and so he decided to stop the next northbound service, which was the Caledonian sleeper operated by GBRF. GBRF driver advised the signaller that they were unaware of the BSR, so the signaller provided the speed restriction details before allowing the train to proceed. The Blackford signaller, now concerned that not all drivers were aware, stopped in caution the next northbound service, a ScotRail passenger train again, and that driver was also unaware of the BSR. Signals then contacted control to inform that not all drivers seem to know about the restriction, which is a risky situation, especially considering the number of earthworks related failures um, linked to rainfall of late. And yeah, I'm going to include the tragic incident at Carmont from, well, it's very recent memory. So, what went wrong then? Well, clearly the drivers hadn't been informed of the restrictions, but why not? The BSRs are distributed to a predefined list when they're put in place, including the signal boxes and email addresses for ScotRail, DRS and GBRF. Network Rail intended that the train operators would make the notices available to their respective drivers, so TOX and FOX indeed, so freight operating companies as well, would make their drivers aware through the use of um, late notice cases, it's the, the sort of industry standard way of doing these. And also for signalers to uh, to advise drivers of BSRs in accordance with the railway rulebook. However, due to an oversight within ScotRail, the BSR notice was not actually forwarded to drivers who were booking on at Glasgow Queen Street. This meant that ScotRail drivers taking northbound services were not aware of the BSR. And more concerningly, however, is the fact that both DRS and GBRF both stated they never received the notification and the system that's in place doesn't actually require an acknowledgement to be sent. Network Rail doesn't require that the uh, the operator come back and say, yep, yeah, I've got that speed restriction. I'll make sure it's actioned. Thank you for sharing it. It's just a case of a, uh, well, it feels like fire and forget. Rulebook module GERT8000-SP, catchy I know, also called speeds, does not require any warning signage or track equipment to be provided to warn drivers about a BSR. However, it does require signals to arrange for the driver of each affected train to be told and um, the locations that it's affecting. Signals don't need to do this if Ops Control has arranged to tell drivers by other means, such as those control emails. Following an incident in December of 2020, Network Rail instructed route control centres that drivers should, in future, be given warnings of BSRs by signallers. In Scotland's railway, this instruction required drivers to be stopped and cautioned for the first 12 hours after details of a BSR have been provided. So that would mean that till mid-afternoon, drivers should have been uh, cautioned, stopped and cautioned. at the time that these overspeeding incidents occurred this 12-hour period had not yet been elapsed and well we know that they weren't being stopped and cautioned until a cause for concern um presented it key learning points from this one then as the digest tells us this incident demonstrates the importance of having robust processes to ensure train drivers are notified of blanket speed restrictions signalers understanding when they are expected to stop and caution drivers on the approach to blanket speed restrictions And also signals receiving clear and unambiguous instructions. Love those words, clear and unambiguous instructions when this is not required. Okie dokie. Digests digested. It's now time for us to uh, report on a report. Okay, then we briefly mentioned this on our catch-up episode a little while back as well, but now we're going to talk about the report into December 2021 derailment of a freight train at London Gateway. In summary, at around 5.45 in the morning on the 24th of December 2021, so quite some time ago now, five wagons of a 33-wagon intermodal freight train derailed at low speed as it was entering the rail terminal at London Gateway Port in Essex. The derailment started when wagons on, uh, wheels on a wagon in the middle of the train suddenly lifted off the track, with the other wagons being derailed as they passed over points within the terminal. While no one was injured, thankfully, infrastructure damage disrupted rail freight access into and out of the port for 14 days. The train was a, uh, a Class 66 diesel locomotive, well, diesel electric if we're being technical, and a mixture of 33 intermodal flat wagons. Some nine of them were. Single wagons, just a flatbed that a container can slot onto. And the other ones were made out of multiple vehicles permanently coupled together. So six were twin wagons, and four were Ecofret two triple wagons. So that was three wagons permanently coupled together with a bar coupler between two wagons and um, normal couplers, screw couplers on the outsides. And they're a further developed vision of the earlier Ecofret one a standard feature, realistically, on freight trains nowadays, so this idea of multiple, multiple wagons permanently coupled together. It's um it's less coupling and messing about when marshalling trains together, but as we'll find here, it's not without its apparent risks. In fact, the EcoFret 2 was known to be somewhat prone to derailment under the right circumstances, and we'd already seen this a little bit from the EcoFret 2 in other times as well. So the first derailed wagon was the unloaded centre wagon of a triple. Um, The wagons on either side of the unloaded centre wagon were loaded and a train brain application had recently been made when the derailment occurred. Um, Following the incident, the branch did the usual checks and marks and damage were found on the track coming up to that signal. They were consistent with both left-hand wheels on a single bogey lifting up onto the rail, the, the left and right wheels of both wheel sets then becoming airborne for a couple of metres and then the right-hand wheels then landing on the sleepers between the tracks and the left-hand wheels in the cess. So what led to all of this taking place? And it's what we're here for, but bear in mind it's a roundup, so I'm gonna gloss over some of the detail, Uh, but here we go, just a brief explanation. The immediate cause after many pages of complex info that I would urge you to explore yourself because actually this one was one I found Difficult to read, I don't know if it's because I'm less engineeringly minded than some people, but I didn't struggle just to get, I'd struggle to do a full episode out of this. I can do a roundup, but a full episode would be challenging for me to write, I think. In any case, the immediate cause is that longitudinal, longitudinal see I can't even get that word out. Longitudinal compressive forces generated within the train during braking were sufficient to cause the wheels on the leading bogey of that triple just to lift and run derailed. Um, The wagon was susceptible to derailment under this type of compressive force. Um, Its condition and the loading of the triple wagon as well, with the two ends being loaded and the middle unloaded, increased this risk. So the branch goes on to tell us that the design process for these wagons didn't fully recognise the need to change the design from the EcoFret 1, specifically to improve behaviour under longitudinal compressive forces, um, and there were things that could have been implemented in the design stage to reduce this risk. So, for example, there could have been fitted side buffers between the centre and outer wagons. There could be sort of cup and cone devices between the wagons to protect overriding against each other. In In effect, locking the wagon ends together. Or they could have worked on restricting the bar coupler rotation by some means, helping prevent the coupled wagons from running out of line. All the options were discounted because of well probably the complexity and the design and modification work involved for the EcoFret 1s as in a retrofit. But realistically the development of the EcoFret 2 did present an opportunity to or well, reconsider these improvement options, but I'd say it was a missed opportunity. You can add into the situation that the condition could potentially have increased the risk of derailment. Um there were some features on the wagons known as primary lateral buffers or PLBs. Um, they were a sort of a sliding frame design that was designed to capture a virtual lug known as shark fins, which is a much more interesting name than primary lateral buffers. This was meant to restrict the movement of the borgies, um, and the RIB identified signs of significant damage and degradation on several PLBs. Um, for example, on Wagon 12, nearly all the friction strips had detached, and there was evidence that some of the laminated elastomeric springs which again is a sentence and a half had split um degradation of the plbs was a problem that had existed before the derailment and work was being carried out to to investigate that when the derailment occurred uh, and as i mentioned before because wagon 12 had no container weight payload um it it resulted in two vulnerabilities that made the wagon more prone to lifting under that compressive force. And firstly, that uh, the lack of payload caused the bar couplers to become inclined. So the two outer wagons were loaded and lower on their suspension, which meant that the bar couplers were slightly inclined up towards the middle wagon. And that provided forces that had a potential to lift that centre wagon. And secondly, the lack of payload well, simply, it just reduced the wheel load that lifting forces needed to overcome if the wagon should decide to try and derail. I'm not going to labour on this one. It is a quite heavily technical report. Um, and we I think we know everything we need to know about why the accident took place. But yeah, it's, it's quite a heavy technical one. And uh, I'm not sure that my post-Christmas come down can handle doing it justice right now. So one, I'm going to say... Head off and have a little read if you are interested, and you'll probably find it's much more um, informative if you're reading it than me trying to babble on about it. So before I run out of steam, chuff chuff, um, I think it's time for us to move on to the last subject of this week's roundup episode. Right, oh then, the, uh, the high-speed train. Um... High-speed train has become an almost regular feature of episodes of this podcast proper with a great deal of regret behind it, actually. It's a a shame to to keep bringing it up, but we know that the content is is not not forthcoming as far as those trains are concerned. In truth, the the fact that we've had them in so many episodes so far is actually just down to the prevalence and the characteristics of the train. In terms of prevalence, the Intercity 125 had been the mainstay of the UK's mainline fleet for decades, a factor that's only just subsiding now with the withdrawal of that fleet in favour of newer offerings, so predominantly Hitachi's 80X variants, so GWR and LNER now have them, uh, and other operators are also bringing them in to provide high-speed services on core routes from Hull Trains, TPE, Blue Mo and Avanti, with uh, EMR now taking an Hitachi AT 300 variant as their new fleet as well, so... Prior to all of that, HSTs were everywhere. The, the the big mainline trains were predominantly HSTs. So it's not unusual that there would be a lot of accidents because proportionally they were everywhere. Um, and another factor of note is on that second one, that the uh, the trains predominantly operated at high speed, something which can be relatively easily deduced by their moniker – So when accidents have occurred, they've been of note, um, with significant and often tragic consequences, see Carmont, often Nerva and Ladbroke Grove, to name just three examples that we've previously covered. So why am I talking about them today? Well, funny you should ask. It's because of an incident which occurred between Christmas and New Year on the 27th of December, in the midst of one of our many recent named storms. A ScotRail HST collided with a tree between Dundee and Glasgow at Brody Ferry. To start with, I'll just point out that the driver of the train in question, one of the TOX into 7 city sets, escaped without any serious consequences, which is astonishing, actually. If you look at the photos circulating on the internet since, there's a, 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 a tree, a, it's crashing into a tree, but there's been a hole that's essentially been gouged out of the side of the cab from the windscreen, the veritable chunk is missing from that windscreen itself all the way back to the rear side door of the cab, the rear side cab door. Um, so this whole quarter of of the cab from front to, to the bulkhead is pretty much missing on one side of the train. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a sobering image. And Knowing that the driver's better makes it slightly easier. The driver's fine makes it slightly better to digest, but it's still a scary, scary concept. But trees hit trains all the time. We've seen other uh, tree strike images. We've seen close calls for drivers, and unfortunately, we've seen injuries to to drivers as well. But Crucially around HSTs, this has served well to ignite a debate which we've previously seen following a number of other incidents, and that is the suitability of the Class 43 to be operating on the main line at high speed in 2024. It was a debate about it in 2023 last year, but clearly they are still out and about. Generally speaking, the HST is a good train. Its vehicles have served its occupants well in many accidents. But there have been concerns raised specifically about the cab of the locomotive itself. While the majority of the vehicle is, of course, a um, a nice sturdy construction, um, see, steel, the cab itself, as we've discussed previously, is constructed of a material called GRP, glass reinforced plastic, or fiberglass. While having nice, smooth and attractive aerodynamic front ends made of materials like fiberglass or other lightweight elements isn't something which has fallen by the wayside, things have certainly changed over time since the construction of the HSTs. Let's not forget that these are a product of the 70s, but modern units feature a significant amount of protection underneath that external shell. If you look at, for example, the the Hitachi AOX fleet, They've got this glorious, smooth front end um, that, you know, you couldn't make that out of beaten metal, not very easily. Um, You know, you couldn't have that made of steel, but underneath that shell is significant, copious amounts of structural steel specifically built to protect the front end of the train, absorb damage and protect the driver when you make the whole thing out of fiberglass without that structural steel underneath you don't have a sacrificial layer you have a sacrificial cab standards have developed somewhat over the time and that means that the demands placed on designers and manufacturers to design increasingly more crashworthy trains have well they've only increased with each iteration the crux of the issue is that in the, adduction, in the introduction of each new standard, vehicles that came before haven't been required to meet the new standard. It's not been required of operators or the owners of the stock to retrospectively amend the fleets to meet those new, more exacting standards. If I were to build the Class 43 now, well, I couldn't, um, but it would be a significant endeavour to convince anyone that the design was appropriate for modern rolling stock, which would be fine, because they were from the 1970s, except for the fact that they are still rocking around at line speed day to day in passenger service. Not heritage, but in regular passenger service. In a number of accidents involving HSTs, the cab of the vehicle has responded particularly badly when compared to other elements of the loco and the train itself, the whole train. To name two examples at Carmont, we saw it fully detached from the leading vehicle in the crash and at Labrook Grove it was entirely destroyed while the remainder of the local lay relatively recognisable. The debate is very much still in heat and will likely be so every time any incident occurs involving the fleet until such a point as they are withdrawn for good. So you might be interested in hearing my view on it. Uh, Maybe not. If not, I suppose uh, that's what the fast forward button's for. But I'll briefly sort of tell you where where I'm at with it, because it's something I've been giving a bit of thought to recently. It wouldn't be practical at all to demand that every time a standard is amended or introduced that we class all existing rolling stock as no longer being suitable for the network. It's impractical and in all fairness often changes to the standards are of a far more incremental nature they're not large wholesale changes and the asset lives of trains do run into decades they are expensive pieces of kit then they're not cheap they're like airplanes you you buy them they cost a fortune but you need them to last and they do really On the subject of HSTs alone, from 1975 they started building them and um, it's 2024 and they still work. In any case, it would be impractical to turn around and say that everything that was previously here is no longer allowed to run. That being said, I think there should be a limit as to the amount of time that historic stock can be grandfathered into new standards. A fleet that's um, been on the rails for nearly 50 years has seen a number of standards come and go. And like I said, with the Class 43, every standard since 1975 is an improvement on the safety standards that that locomotive was designed against. It's an improvement on the requirements that were placed on the BR design team. So surely there's got to be a point where we say, after a reasonable time, that we can't accept any further the fact that safer options simply exist for both passengers and train crew and weren't chosen. In fact, the, um, the European standard, which governs crashworthiness in rail vehicles, EN 15227, was introduced in 2008, became legally binding in 2012, and this means by the time that <laughs> EN 15227 was introduced, the HSTs were already 30 years-ish older, than than the standard. I think one of the most contentious issues that's related to the HSTs is that at the time they were introduced by ScotRail, they were already quite far into a long career. At a point when other operators up and down the country were introducing brand new compliant fleets, ScotRail made the decision to introduce what is, for all intents and purposes, kind of a heritage fleet. The average age of passenger rolling stock in the UK is currently, as of October 2023, 16.7 years old. This is a result of more and more operators introducing new units. Greater Anglia, for example, with the addition of their flirts, as um, Stadler flirts, not friendly staff, (laughs) sees an average age of only 5.2 years. And in fact, LUMO and Hull Trains have average ages of 1.8 and 3.3 years, respectively. Although, to be fair to them, they have very small, very new fleets to work that average out from. LNER is 7.7 with the Azuma introduction. TPE's Novas have brought their average fleet age to 9.6. And GWR, with a whole load of IETs on the roster, um, their average fleet age is 14.9, dragged down by... Some of the older stuff that's still knocking around. All operators in that list there, they've all introduced new fleets alongside older stock, but their average fleet age has come down. But ScotRail has an average fleet age of 23.3 years. It's not the oldest, admittedly, that is taken by Chiltern at 29.9. But we need to look at the ScotRail figure in context. Within that average age, so it's 23.3. But within that average age, they have 70 Class 385 trains that were built in a period between 2015 and 2019, and 38 Class 380s that were built between 2009 and 2011. Dragging down that average considerably is the knock-on effect of two things. Firstly, the 70s chic Into 7 City HST fleet, and also a number of sprinters and BR second-generation um, emus sorry, that Sit within the fleet, mostly constructed in the late eighties and early nineties. but there is a difference between those two groups the 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 DMUs and emus um which serve the Highland lines, the interurbans around Glasgow, and a few other routes across Scotland those were inherited almost they've they are fleets that have just been working those routes for decades. They've they've kind of always been there, they were they were built for it, they've been there forever when ScotRail, in its various guises with various owners, has just kind of inherited them. But the HSTs were introduced as a conscious decision. They don't have them. They don't have these forty-five-year-old trains because they were already there and they needed to figure out what to do with them in the future, but because ScotRail chose to use the cascading Scott stock to provide new, new and in invert commas, stock for their intercity services. This exercise does raise questions, because if you're in the position where you need to procure a fleet, surely the best option, unless it is a stopgap, you know, um, cascading more units of a fleet you already have, like Northern's just done with 323s from the Midlands, Surely, the the best option is to get a new, modern, safer fleet of trains. And I appreciate—I really do. This is not. This is an area of, of rail business I have less experience in. I will hold my hands up and say that. But I appreciate that cost benefit analysis has got to come into the equation at some point. But at what point do talks and indeed the government departments pulling their strings? need to say that enough is enough for cascaded fleets. Um, Gareth Dennis shared some figures on Rail Natter recently which speak to this, and I can't find the citation. I've not been able to find the citation yet, but I will keep looking for it. But the, the figures there were comparing the HSTs versus other options. So to get those HSTs had a cost of £475 million for the heritage option, Plus all the upgrades and refurb work to get them up to standard. They haven't you know, they have just taken them, sold a scene. They've done a lot of work to get them to, to feel like a modern train. Um, so that was 475 million. If ScotRail had chosen units based on the Stadler Flirt platform, that would have been an increase to 613 million. And a Hitachi IET option would have brought a price tag of 671 million. So the two new fleets... That's an increase in price of about a third on top of the, the option of the refurbished HSTs. But we need to contextualize that with the time attached to the decision. So the HST fleet, 475 million for 12 and a half years, by which point the design is that they will be superseded by a new fleet. They are a long stopgap, but both of the FLIRT and IET suggestions were 40 year solutions. That means that the cheapest, um, and let's not pretend that that will have come into the decision-making process. The cheapest option equates to an investment of thirty-eight million pound per year. stainless flirts would have been fifteen point three million per year, and IET sixteen point seven, both bringing their massive benefits in terms of safety, reliability, efficiency. There's there's lots of things that have improved in the interim, and I know I, I'm. I'm I'm not naive. I know that the investment would not have been nicely spaced out in that way, but I'm sure you understand where I'm coming from on this. It's a prime example of short-term savings impacting long-term investment. I love HSTs. I really do. This isn't a HST bashing exercise. They've been a a real key component of the industry for years and years, for decades. They are the trains that people of my generation and the generation before and probably some of the generation before that stood by the side of the track and went, wow, look at that speedy, super train. But there's three generations potentially of enthusiasts who have watched them and they're still being used. And look, I've waxed lyrical about them enough for this episode, probably. Look, I know this might be a divisive issue, but I'm finally making a decision about which side of this particular fence I come down on. When those operators who have had them on the roster since the beginning, or who have picked them up at some point in the intervening half-century, phased out those vehicles, this should have been the last we saw of them on the mainline in regular passenger service. For Scotrail to procure them, when they did, was, in my very, very humble opinion, the wrong decision. Now is the time for those trains to be removed from the roster of talks once and for all. I'm not saying ground them. I'm not saying the ORR should issue a prohibition notice which would effectively ban them. I'm saying that right now is the time that the procurement exercise to replace them should start. Any future plans that ScotRail might have to do that should be brought forward. And I know ScotRail has a number of fleets that they want to replace. ScotRail should move the replacement of the HSTs to the front of the queue. Yeah, they need to replace those sprinters and those early emus banging around the Northlands as well, but priority should be given to those trains they expect to run at the highest speed and those with proven issues linked to their age. Anyway, that's my two pence, and uh, admittedly it uh, turned into something more like a tenner, but sometimes that is just the way it goes when you... uh, start talking about something you are apparently passionate about. Which brings us to the end of this roundup. Thanks as ever for coming to join us as we look at the most current of affairs in the world of railway safety. Come hang out with me in the virtual world of social media and join the conversation. I'm on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm I'm on Instagram, but I don't really understand it. And I'm on TikTok as well, if TikTok is your thing. Just search for, well, signals to danger. If uh, email is your scene, you can get hold of me at Daniel.fox at com. As ever, there are ways you can support the podcast through Patreon or through buying merchandise. Just get yourself over to signalstodanger.com danger.com forward slash support for more info and remember patreon subscribers can listen to these episodes advert free that's it from me and once again until the next time you hear my voice which will hopefully be less croaky um travel safe